Well, today we finish up this small little book of Philemon, and speaking of finishes, the best of my recollection, it was about 2011, and Michelle and I were both down at FSU on the uh, track. Um, I had just finished the marathon, the Tallahassee Marathon, and she'd done the half marathon earlier, and we were standing there, and it's pretty cool, even though that the marathon, the half marathon, it's a small kind of race compared to big city races. It ends at FSU campus around Mike Long Track, and so everybody kind of comes and gathers around Mike Long Track and watches as it come in, and you do about three-fourths of a lap to finish, and so everybody's cheering you on, and you get your medal there. Well, we were standing there. I just finished, and a guy came into the stadium and was running around, and he was so close. I mean, if he was running the full marathon, he was literally less than a half a mile from the finish line, and he collapsed and fell over. I found out later he, he was all right, he recovered, he wasn't dead. But it just got me thinking that you do a full 25.8 miles, right? And within that short a distance to the finish line, he didn't make it. He couldn't, he couldn't finish. He was incapable of finishing. And it reminds me of what Paul said in Galatians when he told the church there, he said, you were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? He's saying, what held you back? What caused you to stumble? And in today's text, Paul is going to refer to six different people, six different co-workers in the gospel. And at the end of the day, five of the six were faithful gospel companions and friends. One turned out to be something that he did not realize at the time, which was a foe of the gospel, ultimately abandoned and departed and left the faith, shipwrecked his faith. And then you have Jesus, who is the most important one that we have to always keep our eye upon. So today, I want us to see just in this list of names that Paul refers to and look a little bit at their background and who they are, that, that finishing strong, that we want to finish strong, and Christian friendship is critical to that. Someone named Kelly Neelam, she wrote, Christian friendship is a treasure because it helps us cling to our greatest treasure. Christian friendship is a treasure because it helps us cling to our greatest treasure. The scriptures say a lot about friendship. Listen to some of these verses in Proverbs that talk about friendship. Proverbs 27.9, the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Proverbs 27.6, wombs from a sincere friend are better than many kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 13.20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So today I want us to very just simply think about Christian friendship, Christian community. And as we finish this book in these just few verses, we see that Paul was just relationally wealthy. He had friends who helped him run the race to keep his eyes on Jesus and just keep pushing him, even though it was extremely hard, it was extremely difficult for him. And so I pray today that what happens as a result of this sermon is that if you don't have strong Christian community and friendships, that you will act today and initiate that. If you do have those, I pray that you'll continue to just build into one another and be honest and accountable and authentic in these relationships, seeing that there is a great deal at stake, the perseverance of the saints, that the fact that if we're truly in Christ, 
we finish strong. We finish well. And we need others to help us in that. So let's pray, and we'll look at this book of Philemon, these last few verses. Father God, I thank you for your scripture. This gives us truth. And as we walk through books and passages, we talk about things that are so critical to our relationship with you and our life of pursuing you and, God, allowing your life to live through us, God. And I thank you for just the reminders we have today of just how important it is to have deep Christian friendships. And, God, I pray that you will help those who make excuses about entering community. God, you'll move their heart to see the need and respond. Those who are in community, help us not become weary and doing well, but, God, help us to keep pursuing you, keep encouraging one another, God. And we pray that, most importantly, that Jesus will keep our eyes upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we finish up this book, just a little short recap. Philemon was this wealthy man who lived in this city called Colossae, and he actually hosted the church in his home. So we know that he was prominent. He was probably had, because he had a slave or more than one slave, possibly. So he was a guy that had means. And he hosted the church, and as far as we can see in Scripture, believe it or not, Paul had never actually been to this city of Colossae, and he, this was one of the rare exceptions where Paul didn't actually found this church. Rather, this guy that we're going to see later on named Epaphras, he founded the church in Colossae. And so we're going to see him mentioned. So a little bit of the story, Philemon's slave, Onesimus, he flees from his master and runs off more than likely, based on the text, the, hints, the, the things we see in the text, he stole something, he did something wrong, uh, and he fled to Rome where Paul was. And through God's providence or through him being intentional looking for Paul, he comes and finds Paul, who's under house arrest at this point. And he finds Paul, and he comes to place his faith in Jesus Christ as a, as a, a result of his friendship and relationship with Paul. And so last week we saw that Paul writes to Philemon and he tells Philemon to receive Onesimus back as a brother in Christ. So don't, Philemon, don't punish him, but treat him as a brother. And Paul has great confidence that Philemon will actually do this. Look at verse 21. Paul writes, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. So if Philemon will let the, the truth of the gospel, because Paul's just preached the gospel to him. He's, he's appealed to him. He hasn't commanded him to do this. He's appealed to him through the gospel. And so if Philemon would allow the truth of the gospel to inform his thinking, then the re- right results will follow. And so the more thoroughly Philemon recognizes that God has done incredible things for him through Jesus Christ, through the gospel, why would he not be then generous in turn to his slave Onesimus, who now is a brother in Christ. And so Philemon's ultimate obedience is not to Paul in this matter. It's to Jesus Christ himself. And I love how the message paraphrase says this verse. It says, I know you well enough that you will do these things. You probably will go far beyond what I've written. And so he believes that as Philemon understands and, and thinks on the gospel and thinks on Jesus and the battle so oftentimes is right here in your head. And you, you force your mind. You grab your mind and say, mind, I'm going to think on Jesus. I'm going to think on the gospel. I'm not going to think about revenge. I'm not going to dwell on bitterness. I'm not going to dwell on the hurt. 
I'm going to focus my mind on Christ and what he did for me through the cross and the resurrection. And he appeals to Philemon through this, knowing that if Philemon reflects upon the gospel, because that's who Philemon is, the spirit lives within him. His identity is in Christ. So why would you not do the right thing if you're focusing on Christ and the spirit is yearning and, and desiring what now you are contemplating and looking at in your head, which is Jesus Christ and crucified and risen again for your freedom. And so why would you not give freedom to your slave Onesimus? And so Paul's confident that Philemon is mature enough in the gospel. He loves Jesus, and he'll allow the gospel to shape his thinking and his actions. So I I hope that's one takeaway from this book, that as you walk away from another book that we cover in here in our worship time, that this will be a big takeaway for you that the people who have wronged you, hurt you, those who you don't even like to look in the eye, that you'll begin to allow the gospel to saturate your thinking, not just in a general way, but in a, sp- a specific way to those people or those uh, people or person that have done you wrong or hurt you. And so it changes us. It changes our relationships with one another. And so we talk a lot about, here at Grace, preaching the gospel to ourselves, that what happens in our head that we preach to our- ourselves. But I think something is critical that we don't say enough here, which is we must preach the gospel to one another. And that's what Paul is doing here in his appeal. He's appealing. He's preaching the gospel to Philemon to do the right thing for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Preaching the gospel to one another. Receive him back as your brother in Christ. Give Onesimus even his freedom because Jesus gave you freedom. And so love and gratitude for Jesus motivates our obedience. It motivates this gospel response for obedience. And I think we're guilty oftentimes of making our growth in Christ and our responses to the gospel way too much individualistic, all right? If you look in Scripture, rarely does Paul address an individual. Philemon is one of the few cases where it, it, that happens. It's usually addressed to the church as a whole, to the body, because we're a corporate group who are helping sharpening one another and building into one another so we live out the gospel. So it come, we come to the, the first thing I want you to remember today is we desperately need gospel friendships for growth and endurance. We desperately need gospel friendships for growth and endurance. We need people speaking into our lives. We need people sharing with us. And listen, I mean, just look at, look at our text. Look at verse 22, where the way he talks to Philemon here, he says, At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. And then he mentions all these people, Epaphras, and he mentions Mark and Luke and Demas and Aristarchus. And so he mentions these people by name because these are his gospel friendships, the people that he is doing life with, the ministry with, and these gospel-centered friendships help him. We know that Paul more than likely had a physical element, uh, some kind of disability, more than likely the hint uh, we see from Scripture, the clues from Scripture is eye issues. And so he was very physically dependent upon other people, but he was also spiritually dependent. You don't think, I mean, Paul wasn't a, a deity. I mean, he was a man just like us. He was a human being. And so the fact is he got discouraged. He got lonely, and we're going to see that in a few minutes. So Paul needed others, the body of Christ, people building into him. And so we see how much he valued community, and it was so evident in his life and the way he names people. And so Paul's strategy, he didn't walk around to city to city and say, let's have this big evangelistic meeting, all right? Let's fill the stadium up. I'm going to 
preach you the gospel, let's bring people forward, let's get them saved, and then I'm like, see you, I'm off to the next town. That is not Paul's mode of operation. That's not the way that he functioned. What Paul did was he saw people come to the Christ. He was to Christ. He was in the marketplace. He was in the synagogue. He was preaching Jesus. And then as people came to Christ, he stuck around and formed a church. He formed a community. He trained up leaders to take over that church. And then after six months, a year, a couple years, then he left and went on to the next town. So Paul was all about relationships and discipleship. In fact, Paul probably started nearly 20 churches, and on top of the 20 that he started personally, all the men that he discipled and that he built into, that he trained up, these guys also went out and they started churches. So Paul was always leveraging these gospel relationships for the spread of the gospel. Paul was very involved in people's lives. And verse 22 is an example of just how connected people were in the early church and how necessary even something as simple as hospitality was for the spread of the gospel. Look at verse 22 again. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I may be, I, I'm sorry, I will be graciously given to you. So Paul expresses optimism, even though he'd never been to Colossae, he expressed optimism that he would make it to Philemon, and he's coming there not as a threat I'm going to check and see how you do this, how you handle the situation. That's not why he's coming. Paul's coming because he loves Philemon. He started the letter out that way, my beloved Philemon. And so Paul was invested in these relationships, and he's saying, hey, I'm going to stay in your home, Philemon. And, and so there comes a, a, just a, a second point when it comes to developing gospel friendships. And this is so simple. Hospitality is a simple but powerful, powerful way to build gospel-centered friendships. So if you're sitting here and you think, I need gospel friendships, let me ask you, are you opening your home? Well, I'm not a leader at Grace Church. They should be opening their home to me. No, all of us who have Christ in us, we all should be extending and opening our homes and our lives for the gospel, for the spread of the gospel, for building these deeper friendships, for helping us cultivate relationships where we will have one another to lean on and to encourage us and push us. And the thing is, many people are, here are sitting here, at one point or another in your Christian life, you were very generous with your things, with your home. You opened up your life and your home for the gospel, but anymore, you've gotten tired. And the finish line is out there, and you're saying, well, I, you know, it's not that important, or it's too hard, it's too difficult. I want to encourage you. It's a simple, but it, it takes work, it takes effort, it takes an investment, but it's a simple way to begin to cultivate Christian gospel-centered friendships. Tim Chester writes this. He says, Hospitality involves welcoming, creating space, listening, paying attention, and providing. Mills slow things down. Some of us don't like that. We like to get things done. But mills force you to be more people-oriented instead of task-oriented. Sharing a mill is not the only way to build a relationship, but it's number one on the list, and I can't agree anymore. If you want to build gospel friendships, open your home for hospitality. That's Paul's example, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. He says, we had such a strong desire to help you that we were happy to give you the gospel. But it didn't stop there. Because we loved you so much, we were ready to give you our own lives also. And so Paul, again, just this selflessness, he, sacrificial love, just wanting to 
form these relationships, and such an easy way for us to do it is through hospitality. I think we know, we don't need to be necessarily reminded of this, but it's good to hear, isolation destroys. It does. Isolation destroys. We were created for one another. And Paul is example. He was relational wealthy. wealthy. Here's, here's another quote I thought was really good. He traveled with friends. He stayed with them. He visited them. He worked alongside them. He preached alongside them. He was beaten alongside them. He even sang in prison with friends. He encouraged them and was encouraged by them. And so there's very little excuse not to act upon today's sermon. Hospitality, a simple way to open your home and to begin to develop friendships. Don't wait on somebody else. Well, yeah, when somebody asks me, you take the initiative. You respond, and you begin to cultivate those friendships because you need it to finish well, to finish strong, to finish the race. And then we see that friends pray for each other. Look at the verse 22 again. He says, I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. So Philemon is Paul's friend. Paul desired to be with him soon. And then if you go back to verses 4 and through 7 early in our text, it said that Paul had been praying for Philemon. Now we see that Philemon and his household had also been praying for Paul. And so, again, very simple, but I would dare say that most of you don't pray for your K-group. Let's be honest, do you? The people who you're in community with, hopefully the tightest, and the relationships you depend on the most, do you pray for those people on a regular basis? I love what Roy said a few weeks ago when he talked about a prayer. He said, um, a list is necessary because we just, our minds, we do, we do other things, we think about other things. And then he talked about mentioning, I make mention of you in my prayer, Paul said. And sometimes just a prayer list just helps you make mention. Other times it helps you really just to feel that the Spirit is moving to pray earnestly for somebody or a certain situation. But you know what? You're not going to do that. You're not going to be led by the Spirit most of the time if you're not putting those people in front of you on a regular basis. Are you praying for others? We need each other's prayer. We're all capable of making terrible mistakes and not finishing well. I've known people who I felt like at the time were way beyond my spiritual maturity level who did things that I never dreamed that they could do and, and committed sins I never dreamed they could commit, had a secret life going on that I had no idea was happening. And so gospel-centered relationships show that you're a humble believer, that you know you need other people. You're desperate for other people because you're, you're going to be guilty one day of imploding if you're isolated. You'll do dumb things. Just like Georgia Tech yesterday, they, they, like in Miami, Miami should have taken a knee, Right? They didn't do that. It's common sense. You take a knee when there's 25 seconds left, let the time run out. No, you run another play, fumble the ball, Georgia Tech comes back and scores a touchdown. All right, that's common sense football 101 coaching, right? Yet, why did they do it? I would dare say that maybe ego or let's get a few more yards. What, what, I don't know what the guy was thinking. But you know what? I found in the church, I, I questioned myself and others the same way. What were we thinking? What were they thinking? Gospel-centered friendships help you in those moments. You need somebody to touch you on the shoulder and say, hey, coach, probably should take a knee right now, right, buddy? Right? Like, it's not smart. And he may say, I'm the coach. Don't question me, right? 
But that's not the way he should respond. He's probably like, oh, whoa, you're right. That is coaching 101. Let's, let's take a knee here. But he doesn't. And we're all capable of doing that. Make a list, particularly your K group, and begin to pray for people within your group. And maybe you're thinking, I don't know what to pray for them for. Why, why do I pray? Pray like Jesus prayed. Let me tell you what Jesus prayed. He prayed that people might have greater faith. He prayed against the temptations that they faced. He prayed for unity, and he prayed that they would be holy. Those are the things that Jesus prayed. And every day may not look like a prayer that prays all those things for every single person on your list, but it will give you opportunity to pray sometimes in those ways. So make a list. So you need gospel-centered friendships. Hospitality is a very easy way to begin to form those and pray for those who God has brought into your life to help you in this manner. Now, Paul, definitely we see here five names he names to get help from these friends. Look at what he says in verse 23 again. He says, Epaparus, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends greetings to you. And then verse 24, and so do Mark and Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. And if you're familiar with Paul's letters, you know that he always includes lists of co-workers and friends in the gospel because he needed these friendships. He needed these um, people around him. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, Is any pleasure on earth as great as a circle of Christian friends? Think about that for a second. Is there anything sweeter than that, than just friends who love you, are building into your life? I think about my own fight clubs. Just fight clubs are simply groups of three to four, same gender people who get together on a regular basis to encourage one another and help us just keep our lives aligned with the gospel. And I look forward to meeting with these guys. It's so encouraging to just sit around the table or around the coffee shop, at the coffee shop or in another place and just sit around and just enjoy our time together talking about Christ and the gospel. And do the conversations always look like gospel and Jesus Sometimes they go to other areas, but you know what? Never fails that most of the time they pull back to, here's the main thing. Let's encourage this person. Let's pray for this person. Let's apply this part of the word to our lives this week. Let's focus on our marriage. Let's be faithful. Let's be faithful in mind and action. Let's love our wives. These are the kind of things we talk about in our fight clubs. We need that. We need that. And so Paul names his fight club here. He says, Epaparus. Who was he? As I said earlier, he started the church more than likely there in Colossae. He was one of Philemon's fellow Colossae, so they uh, members. He, he knew, they knew each other. He was uh, apparently visiting Paul while he was in prison there in Rome, and we don't know exactly what the circumstances that led to Epaparus's arrest, but now that he's a prisoner, he's there with Paul as a prisoner also. And back in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, Epaparus is described this way. Look at this, verse 12 of chapter 4 of Colossians. It'll be on the screen. Epaparus, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Isn't that awesome? Epaparus the founder of this church, maybe the pastor at one time of this church. Here he is. He's struggling on behalf of his congregation, on behalf of his people in prayer. 
So picture it, Paul in, in jail and under house arrest there, and, and he's got a papyrus with him, and they say, let's pray. And then the papyrus, he just starts praying, and he's naming off the people in his church. And he's earnestly and praying for them, the word struggling. That's the same word that Jesus was used of Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was praying, and in great drops of sweat, you know, came down like blood. That's the picture we have of a papyrus, just praying for his people and praying that they'll mature and they'll grow up and they'll know what God's will is for them. What an amazing thing. That's a papyrus. What a friend. Look at the other names on the list. He says, he says also, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. And I think as we look at this last part of this list, I think it's really important to remember this. And this is the fourth thing, and this is critical. Lean on your gospel friends, but keep your eye on Jesus. Lean on to your gospel friends. Like, enjoy their friendship. Depend upon them. But never let them replace Jesus in your life. Paul benefited so much. He poured into them. But we cannot elevate those people up to like a hero status. Maybe some of you have been around communities of churches or around other Christians who do that, who they're guilty of elevating somebody up to this figure that is almost like Christ-like. So dangerous. So dangerous. I grew up in churches like that where the pastor insisted to be referred to as the man of God or, you know, the, the, he, he wanted to go by this title, Dr. So-and-so. You know, and he was very much into his title. In fact, one guy I worked for as a pastor, he literally jumped all over a teenage girl for calling him Mr. in his last name versus Pastor so-and-so. And, and this is what I'm talking about. People who, they, they, they isolate themselves, they set themselves up as an authority, but they have no accountability. They're on an island to themselves. Disaster waiting to happen. And Michelle and I can tell you, because we grew up in churches like this, the number of moral failures that we saw happen just because the pastor was above everyone else. He set himself apart from everyone else. I don't care who you are, elder, deacon, longtime church member. If you are isolated and you have no Christian accountability and friends, you are setting yourself up for a fall. You are. You're setting yourself up. We all need spiritual accountability. And those who are in a church community, those who are in accountability groups, those who are in K groups, when you look at those other people, keep them in perspective, knowing that they can't replace Jesus. Follow them when they're following Jesus, but know that sometimes they're not going to follow Jesus very well. And so we keep our eyes on Jesus because Jesus never fails. And so if you look at the next person on the list, Mark is someone who was also referred to as John Mark. And at one point in Paul's ministry, Mark abandoned Paul. He abandoned Paul on a missionary journey. Now, later on, when Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him on another trip, he wanted to give Mark another chance for his failures. Paul wasn't willing to do that. Paul said, nope, we're not going to trust him. It happened burnt once. I'm not going to get burned again by this guy. And in fact, it says that Paul and Barnabas came into such a sharp disagreement over Mark that they split and went different, different ways, separate ways. And so Paul lost faith in one of his co-workers, John Mark, a guy who had incredible impact for the gospel. Yet years later, Paul's final book that he wrote, 2 Timothy, before his execution, 
near the end of his life, he requests that Timothy to, to Timothy to get Mark. He says, Mark's proved himself faithful again. Mark, uh, you know, he, he messed up, he abandoned me, but he's redeemed himself. Get Mark, 2 Timothy 4.11, and bring him because he's helpful to me for the ministry. He had matured. And then we have this guy named Aristarchus. We don't know a lot about him. He's mentioned a few times in Scripture. But I love what the website Got Questions says about Aristarchus. It says, The few biblical references to Aristarchus remind Christians that a believer does not need to be high profile in order to accomplish great things. We may not be very visible to others in serving Christ, but we are still seen and valued by the Lord. So we don't know exactly what role he played and what he accomplished, but we know one thing. He was faithful, and Paul mentions him in Philemon. He's mentioned in other places. He was faithful to the gospel. And then we come to a guy named Demas, a guy who looked very much like a friend for a lot of his life. But Paul, as he was writing 2 Timothy, his final book again, he's in prison. This is not house arrest at this time. He's in a dark prison cell, damp Roman cell. He's just in a, in a terrible situation. He's lonely, and he really feels like his execution is going to happen very soon, which it does. And look what he says in verse 9 of 2 Timothy 4. He says to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. At Paul's weakest moment, at the time when he needed people the most, Demas, who had been mentioned honorably in Philemon and in Colossians, he abandoned Paul for the pleasures of the world. Basically, he said, this ain't worth it, right? I'm not going to be in these conditions, Paul, like you. Jesus is not worth that much to me. And so he abandoned Paul, and he left him at the end of his life. He didn't finish well. He was a guy who had ran well for a period of time. But when he gets to the end of his journey, Paul's journey, and maybe the end, getting close to the end of his journey, they've been in ministry a long time by this point, he collapses. He gives up. He quits. He says, there's a better option for me. And we don't know the whole story of what happens next. And maybe he redeemed himself and, and he came back. But you know what? It doesn't look good, the fact that he left for the pleasures of this world. And that happens to some of our friends in ministry, does it not? Think back over those years of ministry that you served here or other places. You know people who are like Demas. They were serving faithfully in church. They were out being with people in the hospitals and caring for people and doing service. And then all of a sudden something happened, and they just quit. They just give up. You could name names right now, and I can too, just names of people who that happened to. They just disappeared completely. What happened? Usually it says something like, I got hurt by the church. Somebody did something to me. But the bottom line is, it was too much of a cost. It was too big a cost. Community's too hard. The body of Christ is too difficult. There's got to be a better way of doing this. Let's do it in isolation, right? That's biblical. No. And so he left. Demas left. Others have left. And then we come across the last name, 
Luke, in 2 Timothy there, when Paul is talking about being lonely, he says, only Luke is with me. Luke was the man willing to stay to the end. Now, these other guys that Paul mentioned, more than likely, many of them were off doing ministry other places, could not make it there to encourage Paul and help him. But we have Demas who just abandoned him, but Luke stayed faithful. He was there. He was a faithful follower. Scripture says that Luke was a beloved physician. So he was there not only taking care of Paul's spiritual needs, he was more than likely helping Paul physically. And I, I love the fact that he just used his gifts and abilities. Just as a, a, a normal guy, right? A guy who did a job. That was his calling in life. He, he was going to help cure people, but he realized that when he came to Christ, there was something bigger than that, which was Jesus and his kingdom. So he used his gifts for the good of the gospel. And he was a very humble guy, too. How do I know this? We see throughout Scripture that Luke never refers to himself in his writings, and he wrote the, the gospel of Luke and Acts. And he never said, I did this, or I went there. It was always, we did this. We saw that. And I love that, because a lot of times you can pick up on somebody's insecurities and self being self-consumed when it's always like, my group or my people, my team, my class. It's like, all oh, this is like my ownership. And it's like, no, that's not yours. And Luke got that. Luke understood that he was humble that like God had given him these things and he was going to use these things for his glory, God's glory and God's honor. And he stayed faithful to the end with Paul. What about you? How would you currently describe your faith, endurance, and growth? How would you describe it? Think about it for a second. Think about your own life. Did you run well and something's hindered you? Did you used to be super hospitable and opening your home and just giving away your life for the gospel, but you got tired? And you're like, I, I'm just not sure this is worth it. And you find yourself drifting, and you used to be faithful in Scripture, and now you find yourself more than likely like skipping and not reading, not being with Jesus, not praying. And you just see a, a, this drift happening in your life. I pray that it's like Mark, where it's just, a short-term, like, I'm going something else, but I'm coming back to Jesus, right? Like, because I know Jesus. He, I love him. He's in me, and I'm struggling right now. But for some, it may be Demas, where you're just off the reservation, right? You're just, you've gone. And you're here today, but you know what? You're, you're barely hanging on. What's going on? What do you do? How do you respond? I love how Paul finished up verse 25. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And that would be my encouragement to you today. There's grace for your struggle. There is. There's grace for your struggle. If in some way the Holy Spirit is just grabbing your heart and saying, it's all about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Be faithful. Make the effort. Be hospitable. Surround yourself with people who will help you Stand strong and fight the fight. Finish the race. Whatever metaphor you want to put in your mind there, you need those people in your life. We all do. Isolation will destroy you. God offers his grace, and most of the time, that looks like the form of the body of Christ coming around you and encouraging you and helping you. So here's the application, very simply. Meet with someone this week and talk about the head application. All right, I say these hands applications every single week. I understand that a lot of times you know, most of you don't do these things by Tuesday or Wednesday. I've forgotten what they were as well. But here's one that's very practical. 
decided you're buying right now, if you're not in a fight club, find a guy, find a woman who you can meet with. Say, after church, say, hey, can we get together over lunch this week? Those who are in fight clubs, be intentional this week to talk about your own faith, endurance, and growth. Not last week or where you were at in the Bible three months ago, but like what's God doing in your life right now? Are you maturing? Are you walking in him? How are you handling the adversity in your life? God's grace is incredible, and he meets us. You're never too far gone. He loves you. He gave Jesus for you, and if he gave Jesus up for you, why would he not give you everything else you need for life and godliness? He will. He'll give it all to you if you allow him to. Accept that grace. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the reminder of this passage that church is definitely not about coming and sitting in a seat, singing some songs, listening to a sermon and leaving. The church is your design, your idea of how we function in a world that is against us, that's against your holiness, it's against your righteousness, it's against your kingdom. We come together and we find refreshment, we find encouragement. We find accountability. Sometimes we find the, the tough words we need to help us when we're thinking about making a decision that just it will, will mess up our lives and bring shame to your name. And God, I pray that you will just allow us to act upon the truth. God, I pray for those who are isolated, those who don't have gospel-centered friendships. God, I pray that you will allow them to make the initiative to open their home, open their life, invite people in. And God, for those who are in community, in K-group this week, in Fight Club, God, I pray that we'll be real about where we're at, what's going on in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our homes. And God, I pray that you'll use our brothers and sisters in Christ to keep us running the race well. God, we don't want to collapse at the end. We want to finish strong. God, I thank you for your grace that allows us to do that. In Jesus' name.